This episode of the Concert Cast is brought to you by Alpha Graphics of Kansas City. Alpha Graphics is one of the most trusted printing, marketing, and sign businesses in the area. With a focus on quality and customer service, the team at Alpha Graphics takes a personal interest in the success of each customer. No project is too difficult or complex to get you what you need exactly when you need it. From marketing materials for the Fortune 500 to the basic needs of one of the area's many entrepreneurs, Alpha Graphics KC uses the latest technology and equipment to create custom products. Because of the success, the team at Alpha Graphics was honored to be named one of the 2016-25 under 25 businesses in Kansas City, and they're the official printer of the Northland Symphony. If you'd like to learn how they can help you, call them at 816-842-4200 or visit them online at alphagraphics.com. Hello and welcome to episode 15, 15. of the Arts and KC podcast. Who would have thought we would have made it this far? I don't know. <laughs> apparently, no episode, one's, apparently no episode 15 is the one where John's co-host just interrupts him randomly <laughs> during the intro. Hey, no one has told us to stop making these yet, right? So, that's, Well, no one that's gotten through the phone line. And, uh, that's why we just keep the phone off the hook that's here. That's exactly right. Um, this is brought to you by Alpha Graphics. We appreciate their ongoing sponsorship and want to remind you of their sponsorship of the Young Artist Competition. Mm-hmm. There is still a little bit of time left. Yeah. If you have not um, submitted your application, you still have time to Get do so. Get those applications in. Do it to it. Hey, um, by the way, that's John Coster. That's right. This is Jim Murray. Although I would hope everybody knows that, which Interrupt- is why I don't mind interrupting at this point. <laughs> I might so try you never to know. Do this could be someone's first... This could be someone's first. Well, that would be unfortunate. That would be. That would be. <laughs> uh, uh, before we get started with our, our main uh, course today, I we'll want to thank everybody for coming out to the concert. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Uh, great soloist, great concert, and great crowd. So we really appreciate the continued support. we got one more left That's right. in the season, which will be first weekend of June. That's right. Stay tuned for more information yes, more on is coming. that. Uh, I thought the triangle plane in Swan Lake was particularly... <laughs> Delightful. It, yeah. It, and there's a lot of it. It rose to a level of sophistication that I'm not used to from that particular personnel ma- member of my orchestra. <laughs> no, John, you did a great job playing triangle. As always. All right. Under, yes. the, under the main, uh, under our main topic today. For those that, in case this is your first podcast. And I hope, that, I hope it is because I hope people have been telling people, hey, you need to listen. So after you listen to this, go back and listen to all 14. That's right. Um, and rate us five stars. Yeah, I knew, uh, I knew you were going to say that. My co-host has, uh, some would say healthy, I would say borderline unhealthy <laughs> infatuation it's with not, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, and it has manifested itself several times yeah. already yeah. in our inaugural season of this podcast. It's the 100th anniversary of his birth. So you have said. Um, and you know, I am... I'm ready to be done with Bernstein. <laughs> so this episode is dedicated to him. Happy birthday. And <laughs> I think his birthday is actually in the fall, but whatever. And we are spending the rest of this podcast getting all our Bernstein out so that I don't have to hear about it anymore. Uh, but you know he will. And, well, and, you know, I'll continue we'll to work it in. We'll, we'll learn, and hopefully we'll all learn something. So uh, this, is, is this, this is my dedication to you, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate Bernstein. that. So when we job. come back... All the Leonard Bernstein information you've ever wanted, and so much more. (music) 
Leonard Bernstein was a composer. And? And we've exhausted John's knowledge of Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> Jim, your turn. All right. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, John, there are some people that are not fans of Leonard Bernstein. I will admit to not being the hugest fan. Well, and I think gonna, it's, it's, it's very hot and cold with me. Like, well, I either love what, it, like, what I'm listening to or I don't at all. I will tell you, okay, so I will, I will, I will kind of tell you through my journey here. Um, and, and obviously the more knowledgeable I got, the, the more critical I was able to assess what he did. But the statement that, that has to be acknowledged, it has to be made, um, is that Leonard Bernstein, it, it, a composer, conductor, and educator. So there's really three facets of his career. Um, but the bigger thing for conductors of my generation, which you've pointed out how old I am, but, um, uh, I'm 44, um, is that Leonard Bernstein for people, for conductors of my age and maybe slightly older than me, it's hard, I think, to really appropriately, um, discuss his influence on that generation of conductors because, Leonard Bernstein was the first American-born, American-educated conductor of a major American symphony orchestra. So in the middle part of the 20th century, so there's always this kind of bias against the American educational system. Um, We had conservatories in the United States in the 1800s and well into the 1900s. But if you wanted to play like in an orchestra as a violinist, you had to go to Europe. Right. And then you come back and get a job in the States. So that bias existed for violinists and clarinets and all that for a while. And that bias, I think yielded or kind of went away in the early part of the 20th century, but it really didn't for conductors. The conducting thing was you still had to go to Europe, and that's where all the proper training was and all that. So when we think about Leonard Bernstein, as far as kind of breaking that mold and that model, um, we also are talking about um, a, a person who was, you know, very intellectual, very intelligent, went to an Ivy League school, from a blue-collar family. So you have that other idea, right? Um, the East Coast, Boston, Massachusetts, that, that kind of um, New England mm-hmm. New England area. And so, you know, through a couple of, you know, kind of the typical origin stories, to use the comic book term, um, you get, you know, he's associate conductor, certain conductors um, notice his ability and, and stay, you know, know what he's doing. And then, of course, the main conductor can't do the concert, right? So the young conductor is thrown into the spotlight, mm-hmm. and it's a make-or-break moment. That happens for a lot of conductors, not just Leonard Bernstein. But for Leonard Bernstein, um, that make-or-break moment ultimately led to him being appointed at a very young age to lead the New York Philharmonic. Um, yeah, you know, again, in the middle part of the 20th century and onward, the New York, New York Philharmonic still today is one of the best orchestras in the United States, and I would put it up as one of the best orchestras in the world in the top ten easily. But it's kind of like was the flagship institution of American arts right at that point. And so that gave him a position to be incredibly influential. Um, and, and most people know him, I think, I don't know, I don't know anymore. Most people, generally most people go, oh, he wrote West Side Story. And he certainly had huge success in in musical theater. We've talked already about his concert compositions that I think are the most neglected and that he what he most wanted to be taken seriously for. And I think many people know of him, particularly the older generation, as conductor, longtime conductor of the New York Philharmonic. He guest conducted Vienna, Chicago. You know, uh, did a lot of you know conducting clinics. Worked in Aspen. You know, influenced to that next generation of conductors. Um, but for us, for like for me. Um, this is going to sound really odd, but he, he made conducting cool. 
Does that make it wasn't like he drove a cool car. He he was dressed very fashionably. Right. He, he you was know, like a celebrity. Yeah, he very much. Yes, he he was probably one of the first. I mean, we certainly have seen soloists that have done this, and he had a counterpart, Herbert von Karajan, the German conductor, although it has some similar parallels. Um, he he owned what he was doing unapologetically, and he did it in a way that 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 makes you want to to be a part of what he was doing and and um that that changed the way of the stoic conductor who shows hardly any emotion the tuscanini the i'm going to get the orchestra play, to play out of fear which was very much tuscanini's way like like he would just terminate you on the spot in the rehearsal and you'd be leaving the rehearsal without a job. Mm. You know, that's a different atmosphere. And But Leonard Bernstein was much more, well, you know, ingratiating, that kind of thing. He was incredibly knowledgeable, you know. Um, he, uh, but the education part of this is what I think is also, I find quite inspiring because, the, you know, all orchestra, all professional orchestras do or concerts for children, right? It's part right. of the gig. And a lot of times assistant conductors do it. Well, Leonard did it even as music director because he loved teaching. But he would have a thousand fifth graders in Avery Fisher Hall, and every single one of them would be focused on what he was saying. He was that good at communicating that age group. No paper airplanes, nothing. Um, and but then he'd turn around and he did like six lectures at Harvard, geared like at the opposite end, like incredibly high end thinking about music and all that stuff. He had a you know TV show for adults in the sixties, and I mean, so you know, you look at him and you're like, man, there's like nothing that he can't can't do. Um, so I grew up. Um, you know, if I was going to buy a recording or something, oh, it's going to be Leonard Bernstein. You know, I was just so in that camp, right. you know, because, you know, we're, this is, you know, this before YouTube because I'm old. So, you know, we're watching DVDs of his concerts and, you know, he his conducting was, could be fairly outlandish at times where he just kind of does whatever. But, I mean, he's conducted the New York Phil. So, you know, <laughs> you can do whatever. <laughs> so it's not like I, I don't I would never say I copied him. I don't I don't have a lot of his gestures in my repertoire, that kind of idea. Um, and. So the recordings are phenomenal. I mean, a lot of the recordings are great, are phenomenal. What I've learned as I've aged about Mr. Bernstein is um, what we would what we would say now about a lot of his recordings, and this might be to your hot and cold issue. Mm-hmm. His fast tempos are really fast. His slow tempos are really slow. Some of those tempo choices are not in line with interpretative practices. Um, now. Do you, mean, do you mean that like... They're too slow or well, too fast. Well, do you mean like that he had his idea of what Presto was and like he just slammed whatever or he just wanted to push whatever... What, what's, what, That's what a do you great think the question. Reason behind that what's interesting be? is that he's a composer, right? So he, composers want their wishes honored. So you'd think composer conductors would be even more vigilant about adhering to what the conductor wanted and maybe not taking something 15 clicks on the metronome faster than what the composer indicated. Right. Was it Brahm that you said? Which, which no, I'm blanking out. Was, who, which uh, composer wrote the like definitive on how to conduct Beethoven? Oh, Wagner. 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 Was it something like that where it's just like, I know better because I, well, you know, I no, know better Well, no, Wagner was just the egotistical guy. Well, right, but like, yeah. the same kind of thing where it's like, I know the, right. what this should be better than no, the person who wrote it. I actually think it came down to this, <laughs> in my expert opinion. Um, especially the fast tempo thing. So 
I, I'll cite here the, the end of um, Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, fifth movement, like the last, the last two minutes of the piece. I only know of a few orchestras in the world that can actually play it at that tempo. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Just because you have an orchestra that can do it that fast doesn't mean you should do it that fast. But like the descending trombone line, my God, I don't, I don't know how they did it, but they did it because. But I mean, I think it was like I think he knew they could do it, and I think he just wanted to see. I think he just wanted to push that envelope. Mm. Um, he would justify it by saying, you know, it was super exciting, and it was, and and, it's, and it sounds phenomenal. But it's hard for me as a musician to find a reason why it should go that fast. You know what I'm saying? I do. The slow things are also problematic because what he was so emotional and he wanted to, like squeeze he every lap, yeah. yeah. And um, it's not, and in many ways, he is. They are successful, but they are. O- he would be the only person who could be that could make it successful mm-hmm. with that. But again, it, it may not be exactly in line with the, of what the composer. So is wants. it? Is it? Is it? I think he just it, knew he had an ensemble that could do it. Yeah. Well, like you said, if you, if you conduct the rest of it in a way that. When you get to that slow part, yes, it's slow, but as long as the audience is with you and not right. sitting there going, right. the clock's ticking, man, let's go. No, I think they were with then... him. I think they were with him. And, but I think you have, a, you have some people who try to emulate that because he did it. And so much of his... Right, it's more than just a metronome. Number. Right. And it, it, so much of what he... He had a charisma about him that you know, was just like, you know, drew people to him, you know, and people were going to follow him no matter what. And, uh, and the audiences felt that. And he would have, I mean, he had rationalization in, uh, for the pieces. The other thing that um, uh, I think is great to one of the things that we mentioned about Leonard Bernstein is he really led like the Mahler revival. Uh, Mahler, post-romantic composer, you know, wasn't super well known on this side of the pond, and and uh, Bernstein discovered him partly because Mahler is, I think, very emotionally you know, packed music, and it it's right into what Leonard Bernstein was doing. Yeah, but so you I'll know, give him kudos for that. But well, yeah, great. well, and but you know what he does is when you get a champion like that at that point in history, it, he starts championing Mahler's music, which means he starts programming his music with his orchestra. But you know, this, this is a time, uh, a time that no longer is with us now, but the, you know, he had such great leverage with recording companies. He had a major record com- uh, contract with major record labels. So he could say, we're going to record all the Mahler symphonies. And they'd be like, okay. But he also had that personality and charisma to sell the Mahler records and to, and to talk um, articulately and at the right level um, about why it was important to, to do the Mahler symphonies. I think the thing that they don't teach any of us, um, I don't know of any place that teaches this, and maybe it's the same thing as kind of like bedside manner, like you can't really teach that. Like I've had some really good doctors, but they're just like, you can tell that's not their strength. Um, And I don't think they have a class in that with all the eight years they're doing, they probably don't have for bedside manner 101. But what what is difficult for conductors when we speak to audiences um, is you want to be able to articulate things in a way, it's it's what the speech teachers will tell you, knowing your audience, literally, like your. You can't talk above their heads. I can't talk to them as if they're all fellow conductors, and I picked this because of the movement to the subdominant, blah blah blah. And no, that's not right. going to work. Some people might get that, but the vast majority can't. But then you also, well, you, in any audience, you have a good number of people who know are knowledgeable about many things in music. So you don't want to talk down to them. You don't want to talk below that level. 
Um, and I think that, you know, that's something when you, you know, you think concert, you know, oh, just do a pre-concert talk or whatever, you know, that there's a lot. And he had he had the ability to speak. I mean, he he was I mean, I don't know if I don't know if he was a genius. I, I would say he was, in, you know, he he was very knowledgeable about so many things. Uh, great jazz player. I mean, just in interests all over. But man, he could he he knew how to read the room. He knew where he should be talking at any given time, whether that was the donors that were supporting the New York Philharmonic, whether it's the fifth graders there for the children's concert, whether it's the adults watching on Sunday night on CBS, or whether it's just a regular concert audience. Knowing how to identify that level and then articulating it in a meaningful way, that's a, that can almost be an art form that, again, I think is very hard to teach. So, you know, I think there's a whole generation of conductors that grew up um, inspired, if not, I mean, I think, you know, some people may emulate him a little um, uh, in what they do, but I think the desired effect, like, is it's that effectiveness. Like, you, like I think a lot of people went into conducting thinking, okay, I want to, I want to have the reach that this guy does. I want to be able to, to, you know, do that. And I think that's great. I think, I think American music and American conducting um, has benefited tremendously, and his his disciples you know, are all over the United States, the ones who have studied with him. Marin Alsop is a great example, first, really first um, female conductor of a major American orchestra. Um, and, I mean, Michael Tilson Thomas, uh, who, who led San Francisco. So there's, like, this whole lineage, you know, and then their students. And then, so, you know, we can talk about influence. It, it spreads like that. Mm. So there you go. That's my, that's my bit on Lenny, as they call it. Lenny the yeah. conductor. What yeah. about uh, like uh, the composer? As far as like Man. his, you know, arc over his career. I mean, was it always the, the same? Like, did it have kind of defined sections like Beethoven did? Did it have you know more of a just kind of all over the place depending on what he was working on? No, I think it kind of goes by. Well, I mean, I think you know we talked about on the <clears throat> that last concert cast about Brahms needing the summer. You know, uh, Bernstein, between playing and working and conducting and being involved in product, I mean, he also was one that was working nonstop. So I think his compositional output is somewhat dictated by his, his schedule, but it also, I think, kind of goes in, in areas. So you tend to see, like, the jazz-oriented influence stuff is kind of one area, and I think you start with that because that's kind of what he was familiar with. Then the next area you get like um, the you know the three symphonies or Chichester Psalms or you get, there's you know um, um, there's a lot of um, religious themes that work through many of his pieces um, and he you know um, kind of went through that musical exploration um, and so I think it's it generally they're kind of clumped in areas of where they're where they're at I mean it's hard I mean it's the Kansas City Lyrics is going to do West Side Story next year. The Opera Company is going to do West Side Story, which is great. It's going to be great. But it's hard. You know, it's like Gershwin has the same problem. Gershwin and his brother Ira, incredibly successful on Broadway, right? He really wanted to be taken seriously in the concert hall, right? Mm-hmm. And when we think about George Gershwin, what do we think of? Porgy and Bess, Rhapsody in Blue. Crazy for you, maybe, right? Yeah. But I mean, so I mean, I think for Leonard Bernstein, it's like how do I, you know, West Side. I mean, it's such West Side Story is such an iconic part of American musical theater. So, so he's tied to that because he did the music to that. 
Then it so it was a musical, and I think uh, I'm pretty sure '59. Then in '60, '61 was the film adaptation, um, and you know there had been other adaptations of musicals to movies before West Side Story, but West Side Story won like ten Academy Awards. It was like record breaking at the time, right? And it and it it all of a sudden it was like the film industry was like, you know what? Musicals are okay, right? I mean, it's like mm-hmm. their big affirmation that, you know what, this is as legitimate as anything that we're, that we're doing, um, and we haven't, we haven't stopped making movie versions of musicals ever since, right? right. That's kind of the pro- problem. Yeah. But, you know, you have, you know, whether he wanted that fame for those reasons at that point doesn't matter. He had it. And so, you know, that's why you think, you know, that's, I mean, that's why your question is like, good, Leonard Bernstein, the conductor, Leonard Bernstein, the composer, Leonard, uh, really. Well, it's interesting, I mean, he had so much yeah. credibility and respect yeah. and honor in the concert hall yeah. on the podium. Yes, yes. But. Yes, and yeah. world tours and performing Shostakovich's music in Russia during the Cold War. I mean, you know, amazing moments, mm-hmm. you know, it worked with the best soloists in the world, you know. So it, it's, it's, um. You know, it's it's a remarkable life um, uh, that again would have been somebody I would I would have loved to have met. Um, there's you know there's a handful of those people that I'm not quite old enough apparently um, uh, for that to Close, happen. No, no that's right. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's something that I think American orchestral music, American concert hall music, American musical have all bared the his influence one way or the other. And, you know, and I always tell my, you know, students when I talk about, in my music appreciation class, you know, I only have 15 weeks. Um, I'm never going to get music appreciation one and music appreciation two, but yet time keeps on marching, right? So, you know, how do I decide, you know, if I'm going to give them a general impression of music history from the year 500 to the year 2018, how do I do that, right? Well, I come down to a criteria of this. And I tell them this often. Um, the people we talk about are people who either turn out a high-quality product, right, or high-quantity. Regardless, they are influential to those around them. Um, most of the people we talk about do both, right? Mm-hmm. Haydn writes 104 symphonies. Well, there you go. Quality and quantity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, establishes a new form. On it goes. Um, and so, I mean, that's the thing with Leonard Bernstein, right? Um, the The high level of influence comes from quality and quantity of product. I can't even imagine how many recordings he has of standard orchestral lit. Beethoven cycle, Mozart, Mahler, Bruckner, Brahms, Schumann, Mendelssohn. I mean, any, I, I, here's a fun game. Pick a standard <laughs> orchestral work, go on YouTube and type it in and put Bernstein on the end of it and you're going to find at least, I think he did the Mahler cycle at least twice, probably maybe more than one Beethoven recording, you know, at different points mm-hmm. of his life. So, I mean, he recorded all the standard literature. He wrote a whole bunch of stuff in both jazz and concert form. And he educated, you know, who knows, thousands of children in those concerts and adults. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge area of influence, which um, I think used to be more readily acknowledged. I think the further, I mean, this is true for anything, the further you get away from someone's death, you know, the, the less you tend to attribute. Right. Um, things to him, but I think that it that we are still that a lot of what's happened in American music is a result of 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 his life, just his life. I don't think he was thinking I'm going to change the world. I'm just going to do my thing. Yeah, I think we're still one or two cycles below him on the 
Yeah. Influ- you know, the, yeah, you know, yeah. the far away, right, further right. away you get from that right. is typically when, but you know, I think right. we're still close enough that it's like, yeah, these people actually studied. Bit- right, right. We know, still have like, a lineage. You know, it's interesting, like, um, for the jazz trumpeters, you can, you can, you, there's like just a direct lineage of, you know, so and so, so and so, Harry James, Louis Armstrong, you know, or you go the other way up to Winton Martha. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. um, and I think, you know, that the, his, his direct students are now nearing retirement. Are now near now completing twenty twenty five thirty years on the podium, right? And then there, yeah, and then then it, on it goes. So, um, you know, and I mean, I would say there are other conductors that I'm, um, you know, influenced by, and there are certainly other conductors for certain pieces of music that I prefer. Um, like I'll always pick uh, George Solti, Chicago Symphony uh, recordings of the Brahms symphonies. Those are just amazing. Um, uh, I was walking to rehearsal last night and, uh, I'm doing a Mendelssohn symphony and I, I, I always, one of the things we didn't talk about, I always send out reminders to the orchestra and I often send out links for them to listen to if they want to listen to our playing. And for this Mendelssohn symphony, I picked the German conductor, Kurt Mazur. Uh, he was with the Gewandhaus Orchestra at the time. It's a great recording. And most of the time, and I'm sure you're the same way, nobody clicks on that stuff. Um, or they don't, I, I don't know. So one of my, uh, violists was walking in and she's like, you know, I never click on those links. <laughs> She's like, but I had to, this is, this is my professional violist in the, in the group, and she's like, but I had to, I wanted to see what Mendelssohn you picked, and she's like, you picked Mazur, and she's like, man, that was awesome, you know, because she like, you know, I'm like, well, thanks for validating my, my choice <laughs> of that, and, and even, you know, with the conductors um, that I grew up with, Bernstein, Carahan, Solti, um, Mazur, um, some Michael Tilson Thomas, um, Leonard Slackin, oh my gosh, I'm from St. Louis. We haven't had, we haven't had that conversation because he was there for like 25 years and was remarkable. Um, you know, it, all of that, it goes into the big, you know, blender and um, whatever, I, whatever I do is an amalgamation of that plus whatever ideas I have. And that's what you get. Yep. So. All right. Anything else you want to know that no. I can answer? No. I had a couple kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are they on social media? <laughs> One is. <laughs> uh, You've already heard that story. We're yeah, yeah we're here. not doing that again. So uh, check back on uh, podcast yeah. 12, 11, somewhere in there. Uh, it was earlier than that. Was it? Oh, my gosh. Um, but. All right. All right. Bernstein, done. We're putting that in a box. All right. I'm locking the box. All right. We'll pick another another person. There you go. Um, well, if we didn't answer any of your Bernstein questions, you can send them directly to Jim. I'm, <laughs> I'm deleting all the emails we get. Uh, we'll be right back with KC Picks. All right, Jim. Look at my notes. Yeah. See, we've both got some uh, Union Station events, so I'll go we first, All right. and then you can uh, come in after that, because that's kind of how it works on the calendar. Perfect. So, uh, a couple episodes ago, I'd have to go back and look and see exactly when it was. Um, actually, it was episode 10. I there you go, episode uh, 10. Jim talked about Art of the Brick, which is down at uh, Union Station, a big Lego. Yes, which I, I went to go see, and it was great. Yep, and I found a uh, an event that's or a, an exhibit that's in conjunction with that that your kids, if you have any, or if you're interested in this kind of thing, might also enjoy, which is called the way we played, and it has to do with it's run by the uh, National Toys and Miniature Museum, and it's basically. Have you been to that museum? I have not. Oh, it's great! It's uh, great. I haven't been I've, since I've they did. They did a big they did uh, remodel. Read, yeah. I haven't been back since then. But. Yeah. Um, 
but they basically they're it's kind of more of a history on like the way toys, toys that were played with um, like a generation ago so like 50s 60s 70s ish two generations ago maybe so so good toys not like my toys because i'm so old <laughs> right that'll be in a, that'll be about 20 years from now i can donate my collection <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of like old bears and steel tin yeah. toys, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So cool. yeah, um, that yeah. Sounds... So and, you know, it was a little bit of nostalgia for the parents, a little bit, yeah. you know, and educational, the... right? The no screens. Uh, apparently, play has changed quite a bit. No screens, right? <laughs> so today, exactly. So and that uh, is running now um, through May twenty eighth, which coincidentally is the date of Jim's event. Yeah, you know, um, this is our first season doing arts in KC, and I think some of the things that we've thought about as we've gone through here is, I, I think we've touched on a lot of some seminal events that are key to Kansas City. We've, we've got a lot of special events, but we've, we've hit some of the big stuff along yeah. the way. And I think, like Tuba Christmas, that'd be one. <laughs> okay, maybe that's not a good example. But um, I'm going to go ahead and pick for my event a Celebration at the Station. And I think, I think most people are familiar with this. This is a it's Kansas Definitely, I think, most music-minded people. Yeah, but I, I think also think they do a pretty good job of yeah, it. Yeah. So this is the Kansas City Symphony's performance um, on Memorial Day weekend. It's the Sunday of Memorial Day this year. It's May, only free one. <coughs> yeah, May 28th. Um, it is free. It is 8 o'clock. Doors open at 3. But, you know... Um, doors. Doors. <laughs> the that's lawn. A, the, gates. Right. the gates. The gates. <laughs> um, and, you know, so bring your uh, lawn chair, bring your um, blanket kind of event. And, you know, they've been doing this now for a yeah, number of a years. a long time, yeah. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are noteworthy about this. Number one, it is a free event that they do for the community that has huge community support, and that's substantial. Um, we've talked a little bit about how major professional orchestras normally have a staff of conductors, um, and associate and assistant conductors generally do children's concerts and pops concerts and educational concerts, and that's something that the music director stays away with. Michael Stern, I think, has always done mm-hmm. this as a, com- and that's that's significant. Um, the, or- the mayor's always there. Yeah, it's, it it's is a big deal. It has become a very important civic event for this area, um, and it's a great patriotic event. They honor the veterans. They honor the military branches. Um, and uh, the highlight of the end of the evening is that they play the 1812 Overture, and there will be a battery up on the hill of Un- uh, by the World War One Memorial firing off live cannons during that piece of music. Blanks, and, but yeah. yeah, yeah, blanks. <laughs> but I mean, you will, you will. I mean, how the skyscraper windows by i mean it's a it's impressive but you know you can watch it at home obviously pbs broadcasts right. it but it's worth going if you've never experienced the live cannon fire um it's worth going anyways i mean i think 20 30 40,000 people something yeah, like they, that yeah they they've in the last few years it has it become is really, the largest yes. outdoor concert yeah. in the midwest and that's including some of the big yeah. cities like chicago yeah. i mean it's a, it's a it's a huge deal and i think it's uh, they have a slew of volunteers and i think it's run very well um, but i will tell you that here, this is a topic for another day why we celebrate and we do this not just on fourth of uh, memorial day but also fourth of july a lot of orchestras do this why we celebrate Memorial Day playing a Russian composer's piece to the 1812 war is beyond me. Um, I don't know why that's happened. It's because it's awesome. Well, it is awesome, but and we you, don't have anything better. But you understand the? Uh, no, I, I yeah. completely understand yeah. the the weirdness of yes, it. It's, yes, and I, yes, and I was. I think I think most people would be happy to replace it if we had something better. We just need somebody to write another piece with live cannons. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Right. Well, and the themes are great. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. You know, there's really a, there's easy. a version with there's a choral, choral part. Oh yeah, yeah. It's got a children's choir in it. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they do that, and the church bells and the chimes and. 
Yeah, so it's it, but it's a great night and it's super well done. It's just I think yeah, very. They play well a done. lot of music. Wide really variety. Easy. They'll yeah. have singers. They'll have brass ensembles. They'll have some classics, and it it it's a great night. So um, if you have not been, or if you have been, I would encourage you to go and and uh, experience that at least once. That's right. May twenty eighth. Yep. Um. I don't even. I don't have a good segue for your music listening. Uh, is that where <laughs> we're going next? Yeah, Tim. All right. Um, okay. I'll just, just jump. I'll just jump it. in. All right. So um, I went to a Kansas City Symphony concert a um, couple weekends ago, or I don't know, a month ago, and it was Joyce uh, Joyce DiDonato um, playing. Uh, well, the main work on the program was Leonard Bernstein's Symphonic Dances from West Side Story. Well, that I last, knew he did that it back box in. lasted a whole what five minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, we want to hear Joyce, uh, you know, uh, Kansas City uh, native, uh, great, great singer, opera singer, yeah. and so the symphony pro- regular, these symphony days. regular, Herman Jewell regular, mm-hmm. and um, and oh, I mean, you want to talk about like a warm reception and hometown favorite right. in the audience? It, it was great. But um, so uh, I. The, the concert started with a piece by Hector Berlioz, French composer, and then the second piece, which I didn't, I didn't see on any of the literature, was a piece called uh, "The Death of Cleopatra," also by Hector Berlioz for singer and orchestra. It's like a little mini cantata. Well, I will tell you, I also was not very familiar with Ber- the overture they started with. Now, you know, I've been doing this, as John will tell you, a very long time, and I have a pretty good knowledge of standard and extended repertoire. I mean, I should, shouldn't I? Right. So We would hope so. Uh, we would hope so. So I, I, I was familiar with this overture they were going to start with called Le Corsair Overture by Berlioz. Hadn't really heard it. Never done it. And I know why. It's not good. <laughs> um, it, that, was not, that was not where I was expecting <laughs> to go. Um, it, is, it, it is a virtuosic triumph for the string section of the orchestra. The first eight bars is just staggering in its speed and execution. But from there, it's right. typical Berlioz. So, but I was like, eh, you know. Yeah. And so then here comes this Death of Cleopatra, an- another work I was unfamiliar with. Now, that makes a little more sense because a cantata for singer and orchestra, ba- I mean, yeah, it's a little obscure. Like that, yeah. yeah, and it's just kind of obscure. Anyway, amazing Amazing, and here's why. Um, I can I can talk for a long time <laughs> about Beethoven's influence on Berlioz. Um, it we could if you want we could do that. What I was unaware of was Mozart's influence on Berlioz. This cantata was like 20 minutes, and like the first half of it, I was like, I'm I feel like this is Don Giovanni, but only Berlioz. You know, a little yeah. you make a verb out of his name. <laughs> In a good way. Like, it right. wasn't like he was ripping him off, but I could hear the influence of that. And, I mean, you think about it, Don Giovanni's incredibly dramatic. This mm-hmm. is also a very dramatic thing, so I understand that. But I was just shocked at that connection. And then the death, like, at the end, <sighs> spectacular writing. Um, really great use of different tone colors. Uh, Berlioz did this in the strings, like, back and forth between the first and seconds that were split and the violas. And just, it, it was an amazing piece of music that I would just... See, you're never too old yep. to learn a new piece of music. But um, it, I would, I would, we'll play it. Let's play it. Can we play the end? Like the last. You want, you want the end? Yeah, let's play okay. the last minute or whatever, whatever. Well, how much do you want to do? Um, but it's really, um, really quite stag, really beautiful. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
My pick this week is also classical. I think it's the first time in a while we've both come up on the yeah, classical side yeah. of the lit. And the first time in for me in like six episodes that I've yeah. had some classical. So figured it was A little due. different from your last one. Yeah, figured it was due. Um, so for those that don't know, we mentioned a few times. So before I played percussion for free in the Northland <laughs> Symphony, um, I was a violinist. Still um, are a violinist. I still am, I guess. Once, once in a while. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and I went to school, I went to the University of Nebraska on a violin scholarship, and during that time I went to Italy for a music festival. Um, and at that fest, you know, when you go, for those that don't know, when you go to a music festival, you're often assigned various yep. ensembles to play yep. with, small ensembles, pieces that you'll yep. be playing so that you can practice. I didn't practice, but I knew... <laughs> well, some things happened, <laughs> No, James. I was going to Italy. <laughs> um, practice. Um, what is that? Yeah, exactly. One of the pieces that I played was in a string quartet, and it was uh, Beethoven string quartet number 10. Do you know that Beethoven influenced Berlioz? I did. I just, I did. just heard that recently. I did. Um, in E-flat major, this is Opus 71, or 74, excuse me, and it's also referred to as the harp string quartet. Ah, I was wondering if there was an, a little nickname. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, Beethoven's kind of got three periods, mm-hmm. and it's often split up into... Um, Early and this one, early, middle, and late. Yep, and this one falls pretty square in the middle of the middle, um, at least on the opus chart. He's got, uh, in and you can hear a little bit of both. It's yeah, this is a very much one of those, a little bit, but yeah, yeah, this is very much one of those where you hear a lot of the here um, are my roots, this is where I'm coming from, uh, and then here a lot of here's Mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff. Um, but the the, uh, there's a cool, um I'll give you a few hits on this. The the first movement is the by far my favorite and has a, an amazing first violin part ending to it. That we, I figured that was why it was your favorite. Did well, you I played second. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask. No. Okay. Um, there is a the second does take the melody and come over. So it's just basically this all it all leads up with typical Beethoven, right? It all leads up to this one minute thirty second end. Yeah, and uh, and it just. It's this big arpeggio thing for the first violins and a bunch of pitzing, and then it builds to the second, and then the viola comes in, and the ch- and it's yeah, yeah. very triumphant ending, right? Um, so I will play you some of that, but I will also recommend that you listen to the third. I mean, you should listen to all of it, but the third yes. movement is the scherzo, and we were assigned to play that, and about mm, 30 minutes into attempting to play it, <laughs> it was not going to happen. And the reason, yeah. and it's when you listen to it, I mean, obviously, you'll listen to it, and it'll sound great. And yes. like, oh, this is... But there, it's in one. Yes. It's with moving. triplets, with... Within, so. with, with With triplets, but they, they're all pickups. Okay. So, like, when you're when you're in one, there's no, like, there's no... Right. There's no third... There's no second beat to get your, your pickup in. Right. And it's like, da-da-da, one, 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 da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
I'm cheating a little bit on my food. Well, before you do that, I just want to can I can I follow up on the Beethoven one bit? You just ha- you just have to. I just you. have to. <laughs> um, I just want to say um, I wish I I just wish I had more time to listen to music. And if I had more time to listen to music, I think like the Beethoven string quartets in general are underappreciated. Yeah. Like all of them. I actually feel the same way about it. Here's another little tip. Schubert piano music. Solo piano music is quite awesome. You know, it's just one of those things where... Yeah, I will you know, say that, that, that and Beethoven's very predictable in the sense of... Many, yeah. In the sense of, like, if you like a certain style of music, yeah. you can... And if you listen to a lot of Beethoven, you, you can kinda... pick your opus numbers with Beethoven, and you can pretty much... Oh, what a great game! You can pretty much determine whether or not you'll like it or not. Like, for example, my, my mother, who listens to this podcast, and we very much appreciate that, is not as much a fan of the later Beethoven stuff as okay. she is. So when I, right. actually, when we went on a trip, I played this quartet and for And what's she, the opus number for this one? 74. All right. And so she's like, mm, I'll try it, right? Like, she, <laughs> likes, she likes Mozart and the earlier opus yeah, yeah, stuff, right? Sure. So, and she liked it. And, and as right. I said, it's like right in the middle. Yeah. Um, but so, so I will say that it's very much that way, too. Like, and I think, I mean, Beethoven's someone who, I think I've under listened to because yeah. there's so much out there, yeah. and it's That's so right. you know, and then community stuff. It's not played as That's often right. as like a lot of the Mozart stuff. So, That's right. yeah. All right, now food. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Are you sure? Okay, I'm, I'm sure. All right, all right. So, I'm cheating a little bit on this pick because I thought I had done it, but it's not on the list, and I figured out why just oh, like ten minutes I'm ago. I'm very intrigued and, about this. And, because so listening to this podcast, we did a pilot episode of this podcast, and we shared it internally. It was we very did. Much a, it was a test episode. Did I do my pilot one? Do I have another one I can I do? I don't know. <laughs> oh man, what did I, I do on the pilot? I don't know. Yeah, I we did a remember we did a beta I, test. Right, we did a beta and, test. And yes. we, it was very. It was probably it was not probably like ten people probably right. got to hear it. If and, that, um, and lucky just, those people are lucky today, <laughs> aren't they? And they and this was my food pick for that podcast. Oh, um, so I'm, I'm gonna pull it back out though because. All you, you many, many listeners. I am stuck on trying to figure out what I. <laughs> I said cannot on imagine that. you did not touch base back on it. I'm Re- pretty I, sure you did. I think you kind of know the way I work. Yeah. Um, so mine is Empanada Madness. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, now, if I hadn't prefaced this, you'd be saying, you already did I know, this. I would have. I've been like, I, I, I but I would have been list. mouthing to him silently. Right. So and that I you would have showed you the list and you'd be right. really confused. Yeah. And now we just have the. Now it's all out there. So Empanada Madness is. An amazing uh, South American-inspired restaurant. It's down 906 Southwest Boulevard. Right, down, There's a whole strip of like Latin American restaurants and shops and stuff that's on Southwest Boulevard. Um, this is actually Salvador Perez's favorite restaurant. He eats there like every day. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> See, Jim's hearing all this for the first, second time. Um, <laughs> their empanadas really are amazing. Their nachos are great. All their fillings are good. The people, It's a family-owned restaurant. Um, you know, and it does get busy. So I always suggest people if they're going there for lunch. I mean, dinner's not as busy. It's a lunch crowd. Um, so I always tell people get there. They open like 10, 1030. And I always say get there right at 11. And you're usually good to go. Like you try to get in there at 1230, you're going to be standing around yeah. for a while. Um, but the, they do really good stuff. They also cater, um, which is pretty awesome. So uh, Empanada Madness is my, my I guess, retread. Um, it's re- a good one. 1A, so to speak. That's right. So, what do you got? Um, okay, so I, um, my wife actually and I went to Andre's on Main Street. Now, most people, when you say Andre's, think of the chocolate. And they are a Swiss chocolatier. And, oh, my gosh, we were there. They, have, they had giant Easter bunnies and, I mean, all the chocolate. And it all looks amazing. But what I didn't know is that there's actually kind of two restaurants within Andre's. There's a tea room. And the tea, the tea room has a set menu. And you can look it up for the month, but, like, 
you're getting you have like two entree choice two I mean mm-hmm. it's set but when you walk in to the candy store there are there's seating to the right and that is a kind of their I would say light lunch menu um you know like croissant ham and cheese what I had um my wife had something with a French name that looked like a little pot pie with a puff pastry, perhaps. Yes, 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 yes. Very good. But it had, like, um, turkey and right. something in there. A savory puff pastry. There you go. And so um, uh, we went down to try that. And it was really, of course, super fresh, great. Um, it is it is kind of light, so it's nice if you don't want a heavy lunch. You can just... It, so you, you maybe know. have room for dessert? You know, it may be designed that way. <laughs> maybe uh, for chocolate. Um, and what I noticed when we were there, we were there for a lunch, um, but uh, the sandwich part is open, I think, until 9. And a lot of the items were, st- were starred that they're 25% off, like, during happy hour, which is, like, I think 7 to 9, based on availability. Mm-hmm. I always like to see based on availability because it tells me things are made fresh that day. And when they run out, they, they run, run out. out. And though yeah. I might be disappointed that they don't have what I want, I'm much happier knowing right. <laughs> that that's the practice. Um, but so yeah, go down there, have a light lunch, pick up some chocolate. Awesome, a great day. Sounds like a plan. All right, that is the end of episode fifteen. All right, we made it through fifteen. That's impressive. It is something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, thank thank you. you for the few of you that are still listening. To- <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Oh, okay, last time, happy birthday, Leonard Bernstein, old Lenny. Um, thank you to our sponsor for this ap- episode, <laughs> Alpha Graphics, uh, for our sponsor again for a Young Artist Competition. It's going to be my personal challenge to work him into every podcast going forward. You're going to start getting hit if you start doing it. Um, We're going to start a podcast drinking game. <laughs> Take a drink when you hear Jim Murray say Leonard Bernstein. Well, it would have been better today. It would have. Yeah. Um, anyways, go to org slash YAC. Like I said, we've still got a few days left to get your... Uh, competition applications in. Yep. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. Go yep. on to iTunes, uh, uh, Google Music, Google Music, Stitcher. Uh, if you're listening to the website, that's great. But this is better for you and better for us. Uh, don't forget to rate us five stars. I was just about to say, how many stars should they give us, John? Take the num- whatever number of stars that's in your head, add five to it, and then rate it. <laughs> um, if you're thinking about rating like one, just add five and then and rate it. Or if you're thinking about adding one, maybe email me and tell me why. Maybe I can persuade you <laughs> or bribe you or any of those kinds of things. Um, oh, my gosh. If you're interested in learning about the Northland Symphony, you can sign up on our mailing list, uh, both email and uh, post office. Real Northlandsymphony.org for all of that. Yep. That is it. All right. Appreciate you listening. We'll see you next time.